When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Aaron. And Aaron was in a toxic marriage with a victim-playing abuser. It's a story of isolation, shame, avoidance, anger, misogyny, and healing. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Aaron. How are you? I'm fine, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Aaron is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today we are going to hear Aaron's story, and Aaron's story is one of marrying a victim player and someone who grew up with a lot of shame, and when that shame is hit inside them, a lot of stuff can happen, and you're going to hear about it, and there's a lot of isolation and control because this person really didn't want anyone else to be with their partner. There's a lot of abandonment fears going on in there. It's a really interesting story and pathology that was playing out in this relationship. So I really want to thank Aaron for being here with us today. And I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Aaron, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you, Brandon, and thank you for the opportunity to share my story with your listeners. Uh, So I, too, like many of your listeners, uh, I I guess I want to say I didn't even know that narcissism was a real thing. Uh, And sadly, I know more about it than most people at this point. So uh, I had to take it all the way back to my childhood to figure out how did I uh, become attractive to somebody that would take advantage of me like that? You know, what is it? How did I not recognize signs? Uh, And I've done a lot of thinking and a lot of studying, a lot of learning. Um, So let's start with the childhood. I grew up in Manhattan in New York City. Uh, My parents were both in the entertainment business, so they were gone all the time. 
My father was an actor, so he'd be gone at night, you know, working in plays and stages and whatnot and traveling sometimes. And my mother was a fashion model. And so she was often, you know, working at night, too. Uh, we had a housekeeper that would kind of make sure that we got dinner. But for the most part, we could, my brother and I, just two of us, could come and go as we pleased. Uh, but I came to realize what was happening to me as I was a small child traveling around in Manhattan is I was becoming very uh, hypervigilant and, uh, and very tuned into danger and threats. You know, so I sort of became disconnected in my feelings and my thoughts. I had to have my brain on high alert to keep me safe as a child. And I think that just stayed with me through my entire life. You know, they say you're sort of being programmed as a child, you know, and you're learning all, you know, what you need to know from your surroundings. And my surroundings were Manhattan. So that's the input that I was getting because the parents were absent. Um, as a kid, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I thought I'm a big grown up lady walking around New York City. Check me out. You know, I can go anywhere I want to and nobody's looking out for me, you know, but in retrospect, nobody was looking out for me. You know, that's actually a really sad thing to say about a small child, right? To have this realization that nobody has your back, only you have your own back. I was influenced to have uh, an inordinate amount of empathy for other people. And one of the biggest factors was growing up in Manhattan. Um, I was in Manhattan in the early 60s. So I was born in 1959. In the early to mid 60s in Manhattan, they instituted busing. So we had kids of neighborhoods from different uh, of the different boroughs coming to our school and being bussed out of our neighborhood as well, too. So I, I met so many different types of people as a child, people of different, you know, race, religious background, socioeconomic class, that I had so much empathy for stories that I had heard from people that grew up in poverty or without a parent present. We had a girl in my class that escaped from Czechoslovakia in a boat with a blanket over her and her family. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I'll never have anything like that happen to me. So it sort of put me in a mindset of along those lines of being outwardly focused, outwardly focused with an inordinate amount of empathy for people. Not specifically in my household. I did not have to become a caretaker for anybody. You know, my father was alcoholic, but he didn't drink at home. He drank while he was out and on the road. So I didn't really know. There was a lot more cover-up, a lot more gaslighting going on in my family, a lot more lies, you know, and the image on the outside was everything. Like I said, my father's an actor. My mom's a model, right? So everybody looks like they're in an episode of Mad Men at my house. Nothing could be wrong, right? Well, everything was wrong. As far as my view on relationships, I have to be honest, I don't really, I can't think that I had a specific thought about them. My family was like a Stepford movie. You know, everyone is doing their job. The, the food is on the table. You know, we have clothing. Sometimes we go, you know, to a restaurant. It like, seems like a normal thing. But my parents never touched each other, never kissed each other, no loving words, no loving glances, no secrets. Like, you know, when you see two people that are intimate with each other. So I had no uh, awareness of what a loving relationship could be like or feel like. I thought it was almost like the business of the day. You know, we've got mom, dad, cat, dog, sister, brother. We all live indoors. So not a lot of thought about the emotional aspect of it. 
And I don't even think I had any awareness that, uh, that I didn't have love in my life. I don't even think I knew it because I didn't know what it looked like or felt like, you know? So, uh, so I thought I was kind of good to go. You know, the lucky, the luckiest thing for me is that I did have girlfriends and even boyfriends, like little guy friends in, in first and second grade and girlfriends that wanted to play jump rope with me or come over my house or invite me to their house or parties. Uh, so I never thought that I wasn't lovable. I would look at my mother who was very cold, you know, think about the models back in the 60s. They're like mannequins, right? So my mom gave off that vibe. You know, don't touch me, don't mess my hair, don't, you know, don't mess my makeup, kind of a vibe. But I would look at her and I wouldn't think, oh, my own mother doesn't love me. I would think, well, you're the weirdo, you know, you're the weird one. My mother was, uh, you know, wigs and go-go boots and stuff. So I would look at all the other mothers and say, well, it's natural that they're loving. My mother's like some, you know, Joan Crawford or some movie star thing. And so I'm just not going to get uh, but it didn't wreck my self-esteem. I think my friends saved me. And as far as going out into the world and taking it on, uh, for me, it was a bit more of an escape. You know, it was running away from, uh, without getting deeply into the story, my father's alcoholism caused several accidents for him. And he fell down a flight of stairs and my parents uh, divorced and my father was uh, brain damaged and some terrible things happened in the family. So for me, it was more like run away and save yourself. And I ran away to California and I was uh, thrilled to be away from everything. And I really flourished uh, out there. I broke into the music business and I had a big career in the music business. I worked in radio and with bands and record companies. And I really was kind of on top of the world. I was nationally regarded as a music influencer so I had a good bit, bit of confidence from my career as well. Uh, so right about the end of my big radio career is when I met my first husband. So my first husband was uh, a guitar player. So he was very, it wasn't his profession, but he was very good at it. So he was really into, you work at a radio station and you have a house and I have three kids and you look like a new mom and a place to live and a backstage pass, you know? And so he was uh, severely alcoholic like my father, but had hid it from me. So I didn't know. Um, that said, he's now a sober father. He's the father of our one son. We have, I have one child who's 31 years old now. Um, but he had a lot of those little narcissistic tricks. I would not call him a narcissist, but he could triangulate lame shift, stonewall, and avoid like, like the best of the narcs. But he also had empathy and he also liked babies and he had a softer side and some vulnerability. So I would not put him in a narcissistic, you know, box and say, this guy's a narcissist, definitely an addict. Um, we were married six years, had one son, like I said, he had three children. So we had four kids in the house, boom, right away. So there's that family I always wanted, right? The family I wanted. Uh, well, but you know, again, just like my own family, that's not how you get a family. You know, you can't go out and buy one. You have to develop a family, grow a family with love. Uh, so that bust apart in about six years. I spent three years alone uh, dating and enjoying my life and working and doing cool stuff. Uh, and that's when I met my second husband. And uh, oh, he can go in the narcissist box big time. 
So the second husband that you're about to talk about, this is the abuser in your life. And I guess before we get into the meeting of him, if you were to peg him as anything like on the abusers list, uh, which one would he fall into? The victim. He was like Eeyore. And that's why I was so easily confused and and fooled by him. He barely spoke. He would stand in a conversation in a crowd with his arms folded, kind of nodding his head like an agreeable guy. And he's not talking because what he's thinking is, you're an idiot, you know, to whoever is talking, everyone who's talking. So, but he wouldn't come off that way. So I also was fooled by that. And I thought I had gone out with and dated and married so many guys, either in the music business that were outgoing and charming and, you know, whatever. I thought, this guy's different. He's quiet. He's safe. He's helpful. You know, maybe I am too overbearing and talkative and outgoing. You know, all those messages in my head that I heard as a kid, you're too much, Aaron. You know, maybe I do need all the attention and Maybe this is a better partner for me because he doesn't seem to need very much attention. But I'm doing all of that deciding and considering about him with my brain and not with my heart. I didn't feel him. I tried to think him like, hmm, that might work for me. Uh, We met on Match.com online and it was very early back then. I think it was 1999. So that's 24 years ago. Very beginning of Match.com. And I wasn't even looking to online date. My assistant at work had broken up with her boyfriend and she was looking at this online thing. And I told her I'd do it to support her. So to me, it was just kind of a fun thing. I wasn't really even looking to date. I was really enjoying my life. And uh, and this guy popped up, you know, and he seemed friendly and he seemed uh, persistent enough. So I agreed to go on a date with him. So here's the first date. And this is where I could feel something was wrong. Something was off with this guy. Uh, But I overrode it with my insane cognitive dissonance skills. I'm a pro. Uh, So here's what happened. He showed up at my work and uh, we went out to lunch in the middle of the day and had sushi, my favorite local sushi restaurant. Well, the meals came. He never touched it. Never touched it. He just sat there on edge of his seat listening to my every word. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, he's so interested in me. He's not even interested in lunch. You know, where did it feel off? Okay, so we finish up lunch. I bring him back to where I'm working. I was working at a theater at the time. And I was showing him the backstage area and all how the lighting works and where everybody stands in the wings and stuff. And suddenly one of my employees came out flipping out that the software system was down and they couldn't sell tickets and I needed to fix it. And I'm listening and trying to help. And all of a sudden I around and he's gone. He's gone. No tap on the shoulder. No, hey, listen, you seem busy. I got to run. So I thought, well, that was so weird. He didn't eat. He didn't take it as a doggy bag either. He ran off without saying goodbye. All I could say to myself is he didn't like me. He didn't like me. That's it. He just couldn't figure out how to get out of the date. So he ran off. Well, when I got home, he had a, there was a message on my machine saying, you know, I loved our date and you know, I really want to see you again. And I'm sorry I ran off like that. You just seem so busy. I didn't want to interrupt. 
And I'm thinking, oh, isn't he so polite? He didn't want to interrupt, right? So I'm just telling myself the words that I want to hear to keep going and thinking this guy is a good guy and not, and pushing away the feeling in my gut that that was weird. He should at least say goodbye. So that's the, you know, that was the first date. I knew something was wrong, but I overrode it. So as I guess your dating progressed, what were the things that he was saying to you to build trust and was he seeing you in a way that you had never been seen before? You got it. <laughs> Let me tell you what, what he saw, what he did for me is he made me feel uh, taken care of. He made me feel safe. He was able to fix any and everything in the house. So for a girl who had felt so incredibly like alone and abandoned and independent, you know, alone in New York, running off to California when I'm a teenager by myself, like I'm always just it's me, me, me. I felt like, oh, my gosh, I can like I can I can relax. I can stop feeling so hypervigilant and so responsible. I can let somebody else do things for me. You know, isn't that a nice feeling? I feel cared for and loved. So that is what I didn't have as a child that he brought to my world is that protector helper. So uh, we dated a year and a half and we had separate houses. He had a rented apartment and I owned my house outright. And I think that's one of those things that made me look very attractive to him. I had a chunk of money in equity in my home. He convinced me that I should sell my home, that we could move in together. Then we'd have that perfect little family I'd been dreaming of my entire life. He had a daughter from his first marriage. I had a son from my first marriage. Seemed like the perfect situation. However, I owned a house that was worth a decent amount of money. He had no money at all. He had nothing but debt. He blamed it on his first wife, saying that she was too lazy and spoiled to work. And she ran through all his money. And so that's why he didn't have any money. But he had a good job. He had a decent job. So he was able to qualify for the mortgage payments with his good paying job. He just had no money down. So I sold my house. I put all the money down on the house. A lot of money. And um, we signed an agreement together that said that if we were to split up, I would get the first large amount of money, that amount of money back out of it, if we were to sell the house or split up. So when we first moved in together, uh, we had this house that, uh, that needed a lot of repair and we were doing a lot of work on it. It was really enjoyable doing these projects together. And we would take walks, in the neighborhood, nice little neighborhood, go to parties and whatnot. Uh, but he would always want to leave the parties in the middle and he wanted to sneak out, very antisocial. I would see him in the corner at a party, just kind of standing there with his arms folded, not talking to anybody. And I would say, well, why aren't you trying to meet the neighbors and say hi to people and stuff, make some friends in our new neighborhood? And he would say, well, I need to stand here in the corner and watch you just to make sure nobody tries to attack you or hurt you. And I'd go, at a party? You know, like I was like, get out of here. But he's trying to instill fear in me that I'm not safe in my own neighborhood, right? So he would just stand there. The truth of the matter is antisocial, doesn't really think anybody else is worth talking to, but let him position it so he's protecting me. 
And that's what he was feeding into with me is, oh, I feel like this guy's looking out for me, making sure I'm safe. So that was a common, you know, common thing in the beginning of our relationship. He went so far as to build me a safe room in the house. So into the corner of the attic, he built a little room that had a door that locked from the inside, had an electric plug in it with a little burner phone and a set of instructions. And what he told me is if he's ever out of the house and traveling and my first husband comes over to kill me, I should run into the room and call 911. And that continued throughout our relationship. He would tell me that people who were my friends or my family members were not all that great, maybe weren't my friends, didn't have my best interests in mind. And he would find clever ways of sort of twisting stories, experiences about these people that really sounded very plausible and very believable. I'd be like, yeah, you know, my friend really is a real name dropper. You know, she really is so egocentric, you know, never bothered me before. I'd just be like, oh, that's who she is. But now all of a sudden I don't like her anymore. Right now. Why don't I like my friend? Because I'm being poisoned. And the long-term goal for him was to move me out of the country, away from my friends and family, and who knows what could have happened if that happened. I wanted to believe him every step of the way. So in so much as we built a house on an island off the coast of Panama, overlooking the Caribbean, a beautiful custom home, we put all of our money into it. And I was going to move to an island with my abuser. And I think that's when he really would have let the scariest monster of all come out. I, I don't know if I would have lived, to be honest with you. I think that was a long-term plan for him to get me away from my support system. And it started with the, the you know, I got to protect you at the parties in case somebody tries to attack you. So in hindsight, the reasons why your ex is creating this isolation and fear is because of his shame and you found out about the shame and there's this fear of abandonment and the stuff going on with his relationship with women. And you found out that he was bullied in school and that he also had a small a genitalia, and he felt shame about this, and that he disliked men because they were all bigger than him. And then he began to dislike women because those women liked those men. And he started to get this very misogynistic view of women, and it really began to form when he was uh, in high school. And this intense anger started to really occur inside him uh, back then. And the shame was created about his body and his relationship with women. And it only increased. So he referred to his ex as a psycho bitch. Uh, he badmouthed his family, but he really did have extreme contempt for his mother. So he had this hatred for women. Yeah, this fear of abandonment. So with you, his response is now in these relationships is to create fear and then to come in and do everything for their partner to make them feel safe from that fear that he's also trying to create and to isolate and to section you off from people. 
And in a way, he's trying to keep you captive in the only way he knows how. And that's not love. It is uh, fear-based. It's shame. So it's coming out in this way where he's fearing abandonment so much and rejection that he's creating this prison of sorts uh, based around fear. So with you, is there a moment where you do start to feel afraid of him? The most upsetting parts of uh, my memory of my relationship, my 20-year relationship with my husband, are the times that he dissociated in anger. You know, you are, I was terrified. Uh, there was an early, uh, an early argument that happened. I don't even remember what it was about. And he suddenly stiffened up and said, you know, his eyes rolled back and he was like shaking with his fist by his sides, shaking. He goes, I'm afraid of what I might do to you. And then he ran out of the house. Several hours later, he comes home and just goes upstairs, never gets talked about. And I'm like, oh, glad that passed, you know, but it was a lot more telling than I realized. There were a lot of weird things that happened uh, over the course of our marriage. Uh, a lot of uh, things that were very difficult to understand and process because uh, they weren't uh, they they weren't the way that I would have reacted to things. But what I would say to myself would be, "Well, Aaron, you know, people are different. People process information and trauma differently than you do. Allow everyone to have their space to do so." So some other things that you wrote me that were going on before an eye-opening event occurred were some of the things that he was saying, some passive-aggressive things, the I'm-just-kidding jokes that are really demeaning. You also wrote that he was jealous of some band members that you managed who many years later you apologized for cutting them out of your life. You'd also get gaslighting type of statements like, that never happened, you're making that up. And then also, if you challenge him, you got the, do you know how lucky you are to have me statement? And this is just minimizing uh, your feelings and your experience. It's also this kind of deflection of taking responsibility for what is going on. So these things are happening, but you're still not seeing him truly for who he is yet. But then this really big event happens. So walk us through this. Uh, so my husband went out to visit uh, his daughter and she lived a couple of hours away and he was driving home very late, right? Uh, maybe midnight, 1230 at night. And I get a phone call in the middle of the night and he is typical deadpan. I go, hey, honey, you know, what's going on? And he said, I want to be a little late. I go, oh, OK. All right. Well, I'm I'm in bed, so I'll see you when you get here. You OK? And he goes, uh. Well, yeah, yeah, something happened. I go, really? What, what, everything okay? And he goes, well, there, there's been an accident. And I'm thinking, because of the way he said it, there's been an accident. Maybe there's an accident ahead of him on the turnpike and he's stuck in traffic and he can't get home. And that's what he's telling me because there's been an accident. Sounds dissociative, like it didn't happen to him. So then I question him a little farther. I'm like, oh my God, like an accident? Is everybody okay? And he goes, uh, well, yeah, no, not exactly. 
And I go, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm fine. I said, oh, so you weren't in the accident. He goes, oh no, I was. I go, so the other guy, what's, is everything okay? And he goes, no, he's dead. Just like that. No, he's dead. He's under my tire. Oh, listen, I got to run. Cops are here. All right. I'll see you in a little while. No going back to sleep for me. I'm like, I'm panicked. I I can't even imagine what that would be like. He's got a dead guy under the car and he's calling me to just say, maybe a little late, you know, see you soon. Bye. Like it's nothing. All right. So that was kind of telling, like, like I didn't know anybody else that I'd ever met that would have that reaction. Of course, what I told myself is that it was too traumatic for him. And just like many traumas, he blocking it out, couldn't deal with it, couldn't process it. He went right to sleep like nothing had happened and never wanted to talk about it again. Well, a week later, my mother came to visit and said, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, how are things? And he says, oh, fine. Why do you ask? And she goes, well, you know, since the accident. And he goes, oh, oh, that <laughs> that guy got what he deserved. That's what he gets for being on a bike on Route 202 at night <laughs> and walked out of the room. And I looked at my mom and she looked at me and I shook my head and she said, he just can't process it. And I think she did me a big disservice that day because that fed into my own, you know, what I learned probably from her is, you know, don't overthink this. But man, that's inside you. I'm married to somebody that killed somebody and didn't care. Right. So that's a big thing. I'm like, that could be me or How would he feel if it was somebody he knew? That person is somebody's son or husband or father or something. Uh, So that was uh, was an awful moment to realize that I was married to somebody like that. And that was pretty early. That was somewhere in the middle of our marriage that that happened, maybe right after we got married. So maybe we were together five or six years when that happened. And that was probably the beginning of me noticing things about him And having these experiences where I realized that he's not a good person. He doesn't care about people. When I would be sick, if I I actually was, I had Lyme disease and I got Bell's palsy, uh, he could care less. You know, I'm sitting there with a drip line, pick line in my heart and my eye is paralyzed. My mouth is paralyzed and I'm 106 fever and I'm on, you know, this drip, uh, uh, antibiotic for weeks and whatnot. And he's just like, well, you can get your own dinner. Like I'm busy, you know, not doesn't even care. You know, and I came to realize that I, I would say to myself, well, he just can't handle me being sick. You know, he's not used to that. And I'm like, well, I don't care. I'm sick. He used to be my helper protector. So he did seem to change. He didn't care about the guy he hit. He didn't seem to care about me either. Fast forward to, uh, I had a breast reduction. Okay. I had very big ones and they were a discomfort to me and insurance even paid for it. I had received unwanted attention when I was young and I've waited my whole life, you know, to, to become a little bit more comfortable. Uh, and so I went ahead and did that and he knew about it. Well, when it happened, when I, you know, had the procedure done, he was angry. They were too small now. Right. So, uh, so sadly we were in, uh, we were in a hotel room and he feel this awful thick vibe in the air and he turned around and he looked at me and he goes I used to have a wife with a perfect body now she's gone and butchered it and I have to look at other women for sexual pleasure I just sat and looked at him like what 
I said, like who? Well, he goes and rattles off all my friends that have big enough ones for him. You know, that's a horrible, insensitive person. I should have left that person. But instead, you know, I'm still doing the same stuff in my head. It didn't hit me, but I am become, I'm becoming aware that the person that I am with is not the person I met. You know, he's not just shy and helpful and sweet and thoughtful. He might be quiet, but what's going on behind that quiet is dark and evil and filled with hatred. Hatred. So many, many things like that. So when he says that and then talks about other women and you're saying to yourself, well, at least he doesn't hit me. What are the actual feelings you are feeling besides him saying or you thinking at least he doesn't hit me? I'm not big on feelings. That's been my life's journey. You know, because I grew up so hypervigilant, I feel like somebody took a little razor and just cut me right in half. And I got my brain works separately from my feelings. So I am, that's what I'm working on now is learning how to recognize my feelings and honor my feelings. Uh, so I think my feeling was, you know, you're a jerk, you know, and that's all I can think of because I don't feel, I don't feel like I did anything wrong. I don't feel unattractive. I chose that. I think you're a sick dude, you know, but I'm also not taking that to the next step, which is you're a sick dude and you're my husband and I don't want to be married to a sick dude, right? So somewhere in there, I'm telling myself that, well, you know, this is my lot in life. I picked wrong or, you know, can't be lucky in, in everything. I've been very lucky in my career. So I guess I don't get, you know, a good relationship, you know, be, it would be arrogant and narcissistic of me to think I should get everything, love and success. You know, who do I think I am? What is your biggest fear of feeling your feelings? Ooh, what is my biggest fear of feeling my feelings? I don't know that I had an awareness that I had a fear of feelings, but now that I have feelings, I can sort of speak to that and say, I think I would be uh, afraid if I was aware that I would cry a lot more than I, uh, I did at that time. I only had two emotions. I had the happy and the angry. So the crying, the sadness. What does crying mean to you? Well, right now it feels great. I think I cry a little bit every day. <laughs> what, did, what did crying mean to you back then? Is it a sign of weakness? Oh, uh, I was not allowed to cry. And when I say weakness, uh, yeah, weakness, maybe weakness, but not permitted to show emotion at all. Let me tell you a horrible story. And whenever I tell this to somebody, they just can't believe it. But when I would cry as a little girl, oh my God, I'm going to say this. My mother would take my picture She'd turn a camera on me and she'd say, that's to show you how ugly you look when you do that. Right? So guess how many pictures there are in family albums of me crying? 13 of them. I think that's hostile and cruel, to be honest with you. So 
So growing up, even though, you know, before you're this independent kid, things weren't as rosy or like maybe how as you kind of mentioned it earlier on that there were some things going on that added to everything as far as not having your feelings in the sense of this is why you were shutting down in these situations or, or, or logically thinking about these things because you crying is bad. That is something, that is a fear for you because you will end up in that picture book and that is shameful to you. We're not allowed to cry. We're just not allowed to cry. And there were no emotions in my home. As I mentioned earlier, my parents didn't have affection toward each other. I didn't see hugging and kissing and hand-holding and little eye contact things. So we're all just kind of separate. I felt like we each had our own little corner of the house and we weren't really a family and there wasn't really love. Uh, so I didn't think I needed to cry. I, I just didn't connect to that at all as a child. Um, but I'm sure that was, uh, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's about shame. It's about shame. So, so after, you know, these things are happening, you know, things are, you know, getting worse, or at least you are, you're really recognizing now who you are dealing with and you're really a hundred percent aware of, of this stuff. So you told me that you went to have, uh, psych evaluation. So how did that happen in the first place? How did you get him to agree to go? Or is this something that was like just a regular health assessment for the both of you? <laughs> All right. So, um, so my husband and I uh, saw many, many uh, marriage counselors over the course of our 20 years together. I don't know, six or seven at least. And he would sit there in the sessions, kind of with his head down, you know, looking mopey, Eeyore-ish and going, but I just love her. I love her so much. And I'm just trying to make her happy. And I just don't know what I'm doing wrong. And they would look at me and look at him and think, God, you mean lady? He's so lovely. <laughs> he loves you. All right. So that happened many times. And we really not never got anywhere, you know, with therapy. Uh, when we were going to move away to Panama, uh, Things had really escalated. I really was afraid of him. I really had seen dissociative moments. You know, I was afraid to move away with him, you know? And so, uh, so I said, let's go to counseling one more time before we move away together to another country. And this time I decided that maybe this time we'd try a male therapist. We'd only really had one of those before. And an older gentleman that I thought maybe would appear like a father figure, somebody that maybe he would have more respect for because, you know, he seemed to have no respect for anyone. So maybe this PhD guy who's older, he'll respect him. So that's who we chose. We go into the first session and we speak, we go into the second session. At the end of the second session, this gentleman says, you know what? Something doesn't add up here. Let's do psychological testing. Right? So it wasn't like we sought it out. It was his idea. And I think that my husband was kind of trapped in that moment. You know, what's he going to say? Oh, no, not me. You know, he's not going to say that. So I think he thought he could punk the test. You know, he's very smart and very manipulative. But those tests are designed with false positives and negatives. So they ask the same question in different ways. So you really can't punk a test like that. There's hundreds of questions. So at the end of the testing, which we each did privately, 
we went back and had individual sessions with the therapist to talk about our own reports and also the report of our spouse. I got the report and it was terrifying. It said that my husband had no capacity for love, was extremely sadistic. He uh, said he had, uh, he actually enjoyed others suffering. What was another one? You know, well, aggressive, you know, aggressive and hostile, basically. And all of these adjectives to describe my husband. So I said to my husband, I go, oh my God, your report. And he goes, yeah, they got me. That's me, 100%. I, I, I was just talking about flabbergasted. I was just shocked. And I thought, what? So I go into the follow-up meeting with the therapist to ask, like, what am I doing here with this? This is information I wasn't aware of that this person is has such a thought disorder, you know, going on behind those eyes. He looked me dead in the eye and he said, I wouldn't go to Panama if I were you. He could kill you in a dissociative rage. Don't go. And I went, oh, come on. That's just re, hmm, hmm, maybe not. You know, that's what every single woman has ever said. But, you know, he's not going to do it again, right? Not going to hurt me. Just with words, he's not going to hurt me. Well, when he said that, I, I was terrified to go to Panama. And so I just didn't go. Uh, so I think that is when my husband escalated like the big discard. This is when he went into crazy mode. Uh, we went out to visit my son. It's about an hour away. And he he's created a fight. He, he absolutely made one up out of nothing uh, so that he could abandon me in Lancaster, drive the truck home, empty out our house of every single one of his possessions down to the last coffee cup, sock and paper clip and put them in the storage locker that was headed to Panama with a lock that I didn't have a key to. He, I'm going to Pan, I'm you know, off in Lancaster. I have no phone charger, no money, no sheets or blankets to sleep with, nothing. I'm up all night panicking because I've been abandoned. And about six o'clock in the morning, I call him up and I go, all right, you're gonna come get me? And he goes, well, why can't your son bring you back? I go, he didn't abandon me here. I say, he has to work too. So he goes, all right, I'm coming. So he comes and he picks me up, but he's silent treatment the whole drive home, 90 minutes, won't talk to me, drops me off at the house, drives away, peeling out, like peeling out. I go upstairs, ransacked, like we had been robbed by a gang. Everything was everywhere. All the closets were pulled out. Like everything was everywhere. Furniture gone. Everything is gone except one thing. His wedding suit is hanging in the closet with his wedding shoes on the floor beneath it. And that's all that he left. That was it. That was, uh, he moved everything off to Panama and I was terrified uh, to go there. I was afraid that he could hurt me. So when you hear this information, it terrifies you and you decide that you don't want to move down to Panama permanently and to be further isolated. So you tell your husband your decision and in his fear of abandonment response, when both of you take a trip to visit your son about an hour away from your home, he actually leaves you there and then just packs up all of his possessions overnight to ship to Panama. You do briefly see him, but then he is gone. He goes to Panama. 
And because of this move to Panama, you two were about to be selling your home. And then something big happens here with the selling of the home. So walk us through that and then also walk us through what you don't realize is the beginning of a divorce process. Because even though all of this has happened, you still really weren't there yet. So when we went to go sell the house, I went to go look for my original prenup that I had talked to you about. Uh, about the down payment money that I had put down on the house going, okay, well, we're selling the house. So I should get this much more in my account. He goes, "Mm, don't you remember? Don't I remember what? You ripped it up. I what? Yeah, four years ago. Don't you remember? I agreed to sign that paper for you. And you said you would forgive me the $100,000. I said, that didn't happen. He goes, oh, Aaron, I'm really worried about you. Like maybe you have a brain tumor or something like it happened right in front of me. I kept trying to tell you that we should start a new contract and negate the old contract in a legal way and get it notarized or see a lawyer. But you told me I was overthinking everything, you know, and that it was no big deal. I was forgiven the hundred thousand. So you ripped it up. I, I I don't know what I could say about it. Like, I can't believe you don't remember that. All right. Well, you tell me one person in the whole wide world that would remember ripping up a $100,000 agreement. Nobody, nobody. So he basically stole it when he abandoned me in Lancaster and he was in the house. He went through the files and grabbed all of the signed contracts, you know, all the signed agreements and then uh, gaslit me to tell me they have brain tumor and that I just don't remember that I ripped it up. Did your lawyer anything have a copy? (laughs) Well, here's another kind of ironic story about my lovely husband. Uh, His father was a judge. So even though my husband was not a lawyer, he could do any kind of lawyering. He took all the skills he learned from his father, the judge, and he supported me through the court hearings with my first husband. He would write pleadings or he would advise me or he might file something at the monetary's office. So that said, he was the one that wrote that original agreement because he said he was doing me a big favor. He could save me the legal fees. He would just write it up himself and would have it notarized. And who, who notarized it? Oh, another good point. So uh, her name was Mary Ellen, and uh, I called her and she had just thrown out her records because it had happened 21 years prior. She said, I throw out all my records once every 20 years, like nothing from 20 years. So she tossed it. And listen, at some point in these in these uh, horribly emotionally abusive relationships, you've got to cut your losses. So eventually a divorce process started to happen, but you didn't know that you were going through this divorce process. So walk us through how this happened. I didn't have any health insurance at that point because I had sold our business and we no longer had health insurance. He went and got health insurance in Panama the day he got there. So I'm without any health insurance. So he suggested that uh, we sign a temporary separation agreement that uh, would allow me to go to the ACA website, you know, the health health website, health.gov, and uh, sign up for health insurance because outside of the sign-up window, 
you actually have to have like a change in life circumstance. So I said, well, I'm now officially separated. So that's what I signed. Signed something called temporary separation agreement. And, uh, and it basically separated out all of our stuff. And he said, look, Aaron, what if something happened to me in Panama? What if I had a heart attack? You know, but I'm just protecting you. Legal agreements are to protect those you love. All right. They're also so you can wrap them in and fight, you know, into a divorce and get away with everything. So that's what he did. It was uh, it was a temporary separation agreement that I had no idea would be permanent. Uh, it could be actually rolled into a divorce as what's called a property settlement agreement. So anything that was listed on that was considered property and settled. In the end, I didn't get nothing. You know, I got an apartment. I got 30% of our assets. I was entitled to 50%, but he was pretty sneaky, tricky, got away with quite a lot. Um, but I'm going to be okay. What were the sneaky, tricky things? Uh, well, here's a sneaky, tricky thing he did. He worked uh, at a big pharmaceutical company. Uh, what I wasn't aware of is they stopped accruing pension for him in 2009. Okay. So they just, discontinued their pension plan. Well, I didn't know that. All right. So he divorced me in 2019. And by the way, I was discarded. I still never left him after all this. So 10 years later. So here's how that math worked out. So he might've worked at this company for say 15 years. Right. And so I was legally entitled to 48% of it and he 52% of it. But because they stopped accruing pension in 2009, I only got credit for four years being married between 2005 and 2009. So my percentage, his percentage of being an employee is 15 years and mine is four years because I'm not getting credit for the last 10 years. So that was a tricky thing. The way it was worded and all that legalese in the contract, and he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly what he'd hidden from me, that it was no longer you know, accruing a pension, uh, that caused me to get uh, substantially less of that retirement money. And did you have a lawyer? I took that temporary separation agreement to a lawyer who was terrible, just terrible, you know? It just was terrible. I don't know. So I just resigned myself that I had to sign anything to save my life. And I let that happen. Uh, I was able to get a second lawyer to accompany me to court to get divorced. And I got that lawyer from the women's uh, abuse shelter, like in a women's abuse shelter, uh, who really understood the situation. She showed up with like one day's notice and represented me in court. So I had two lawyers, one bad one and one lifesaver at the last minute. In hindsight, if you hired a forensic accountant, would they have found that specific issue for you? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Had I even hired a good lawyer, a good lawyer would do a pension valuation. This is what the second lawyer told me. Would do a pension valuation to get the numbers from the pension company to say, what's the actual amount? And who gets what? And if it's not uh, acceptable, then you negotiate other ways of making it more even. So yes, if I had had a good, good knowledgeable lawyer right from the get-go uh, to protect myself, uh, that would not have happened to me. 
So in the aftermath, you eventually become friends with this person's first wife. So tell us, I guess, about that relationship and what you learned from uh, her. When I had my private follow-up meeting with the psychiatrist that that administered the psych report, you know, the psych evaluation, that was his suggestion. He just looked at me and he said, have you talked to the first wife? And I said, well, no, he always said she was great. Oh, <laughs> crazy. I'm like, hmm, okay. And so would, uh, so would all their, his friends. Oh yeah, she was, she's crazy, right? So I kind of avoided her thinking she must be crazy, right? I'm, I'm sure I'm the crazy one now. Uh, so that all said, when he said, have you spoken to the first wife? I thought, all right, so now I know she's not the one who's crazy. So I found her on the internet and uh, she doesn't have big presence on the internet. She just had one little board she was sitting on. I found her number and I called her. She was happy to hear from me. You know, she's a kind and nice woman. Uh, and I said, uh, she, <laughs> so can we get together and talk? And we had lunch and that lunch lasted four and a half hours. So there was a lot to talk about. And she confirmed everything, uh, every single thing I'd said to her. And in fact said, uh, it sounds like he's gotten a lot worse. She had had, I think the worst story I'm going to tell you about her, and this is heartbreaking, is she'd had a miscarriage when she was married to him. Uh, and he made fun of her, calling her weak and sick and uh, overreactive, right? So, uh, so that's how she knew that he was heartless, you know, because... And I think maybe I would have still said, oh, he just can't process the, the miscarriage. You know, I might have still done that. But that's when she realized she was married to somebody that was uh, was not not a good person. Uh, so that confirmed everything for both of us. Uh, we actually did become friends, shared a lot, laughed a lot, went to a Broadway show together. We've had a few, you know, nights out on the town. We kind of laugh a little bit. So anyway, we try to make light of it because it's a heartbreaking thing. It's just heartbreaking for everyone involved. And did you have to deal with uh, any flying monkeys in this case? Did he have a lot of friends? Uh, my husband didn't really have hardly any friends, but he had a very, very loyal family, you know, the family unit. They had a family motto, which, you know, I, I think of differently now. So their family motto was, if you're not at lunch, you are lunch. Okay. Now I used to think that that was like, oh, if they're gossipy, you know, there's five kids and you know, whatever. So they're gossipy. I thought that meant that if you weren't present, they were talking about you behind your back. But I, it, that might've been part of it. it. In truth, it's like, if you're not in the in crowd, you're on the outskirts, right? So the day he decided to divorce me was long before he told me, you know, I didn't know I was getting divorced until I got papers. Um, but uh, he, he told his family. And I know that because they all unfriended and blocked my son and I on the same day from Facebook. And that was heartbreaking uh, to my son. My son is an innocent, you know, bystander here. And my second husband was his stepfather for 20 years. And this man abandoned my son um, and ran off without saying goodbye and then blocked him, unfriended and blocked him, and then had the whole family do so too. So uh, 
he didn't understand that he hadn't done anything and didn't understand like that's not how it happened with the first time and that's not right and it shouldn't be that way uh so that was really heartbreaking for all of us um so yeah it was mostly his family or his flying monkeys he tried to enlist some of my friends and poison my friends against me he told one of my friends he was really worried i was going to hurt myself you know and that friend called me up and goes uh hey Aaron, how you doing i go i'm fine she's like Hmm. I just heard from your husband. And I'm like, what did he say? She's like, hmm, I'm not going to tell you, but, but now that I've talked to you, I, don't worry about it. I, I think everything's fine. It's all fine. It's all fine. Don't, just don't, you know, forget I called. Right. Well, she told me later that he had called her and said, I'm so worried about Erin. She's been so despondent. You know, I think she's going to kill herself, you know, whatever. And he was telling that to a few friends. Um, but luckily, like I said, he was on my turf, so I had a good support system. So after the divorce, you know, you've become friends with the the former wife. You know a lot more of what's going on. You know, I guess this is the part where you have to confront, you know, the healing process and your whole life in a lot of ways. So. How did you go from, okay, I'm grieving this relationship and what has gone on here to like, I'm looking introspectively as well at myself, not just the relationship as a whole, uh, because your mindset of, you know, kind of pushing things under the rug and, and making these excuses in your head for the abuse that's going on um, was part of why you were there for so long and, and you as you said before you weren't feeling your feelings or letting yourself be that person in the picture book that your mom uh, had so how did you begin that process and like you know and then go, going from like the relationship aspect how did you get into maybe the self-discovery aspect and did someone tell you, hey, to fix this or to at least grieve this? We also have to go here. This is my favorite part of the story. It really is. This is an exciting part because it, it I can actually remember it because it's when my brain started working again. <laughs> you know, so I really like I had said earlier, I didn't even know narcissism was uh, was a real disorder. I just didn't know that. I don't know why I'd heard of it. I just didn't know it was real. I thought it was. You know, I can't get a blood test for it. How do you tell somebody they're a narcissist? I don't know. You know, I would think they would be arrogant and pompous. You know, I had no idea there were people that were thought disordered. Uh, so that said, what I did know was he was avoidant. He'd always run away, wouldn't answer, wouldn't answer a question, would gain me when I would ask something important to him or trick me or twist it or somehow avoid it or run away if there was an argument. So avoidant was a was a word that was on the front of my consciousness about him. What is this person who is so avoidant of intimacy and relation? What is going on? So that was the word I searched. And I came upon this woman, Lisa A. Romano, who is a life coach on YouTube. And uh, she would talk about avoidant attachment disorder. And that's when I started to learn about attachment styles. And I thought, well, that must be it. He must have had, you know, insecure attachment as a baby and, you know, whatever, making up. Well, then I kept watching her videos 
And one thing led into the next thing. You know how YouTube goes, it's a rabbit hole. So I'm going down the rabbit hole of Lisa A. Romano videos. And suddenly she says, she says exactly what I just said before. I would say about my husband, he's so arrogant and he's so dismissive and he's so secretive and he's so this. <laughs> Never put all those adjectives together in a box and said, what is a person who has all of these considerations? Well, that person is on the narcissistic spectrum somewhere, you know, um, because those are the identifying behaviors. And it's the only way you can identify someone who is experiencing or somebody who's narcissistic is by their behavior. You know, they can't look at a brain scan or give you a blood test. So it's behavior. Uh, so that was when I started to go, oh, mine's arrogant too. Oh, mine's dismissive too. So that is when I hit on narcissism. And boy, that is talk. There's a lot to learn, you know, as you well know. I started watching everyone I could find to learn everything I could to understand what had happened to me. Uh, so Lisa A. Romano and Dr. Romani were my go-tos. But, you know, I went to, I watched every, every one of them. Uh, so the knowledge was super helpful. Uh, and made me feel less alone and gave me a much better understanding of the fact that, you know, I couldn't have fixed it. I could never have fixed this. You know, this was way beyond anybody's capacity. Uh, so having that was uh, knowledge was uh, comforting to me to know that I had given it everything I could, but it's still like, you know, it's better to be away from it. Uh, so that knowledge building happened in the beginning part of the pandemic. And I spent a lot of time doing that. And Dr. Romani suggested writing what she calls an ick list. Write down everything the narcissist did to you or made you feel, back to the feelings, uh, that made you feel bad in your gut. Things they said, things they did, things you felt in their presence. Well, my list was like hundreds of items long. So once I got done with that list, I could look at it, step back and look at it and go, boy, that, that, or as Lisa A. Romano says, that really was a really big tornado, wasn't it? So, uh, so it felt like a tornado and that I had escaped something really, you know, really just uh, beyond my comprehension and ability to handle. Uh, so I learned a lot about that. And uh, as you watch these people, you know, they help you connect those dots of narcissism to codependency. And I never really thought of myself as codependent because I had good self-esteem. I don't think I deserve bad treatment. I don't think, you know, I'm not worthy of love. I don't think those things, you know, but I would think I'm stronger than other people. I'm tougher than other people. I can sacrifice my needs for other people. Well, here comes another little broken bird. Let me see what I can do to help this broken bird. And that is codependent behavior. It just didn't look exactly like everybody else's codependent behavior or where where it came from. Uh, so that's why I don't think I realized it. Uh, but the more of these videos I watched and the more books I read and the more I informed myself about this, that's when I started to realize uh, my part in it. And my part in it is 50%. It is easily 50%. And listen, I don't blame myself. I could say I blame my mother. Well, guess what? Can't blame her either. Let's blame grandma and great grandma because we do have a big generational you know, martyrdom going on in our family where the women are immigrants and we, you know, sacrifice ourselves for, uh, and that's just a recurring theme uh, with uh, all the women in my family going back as far as I know. Um, so that's what I learned. I learned about myself and I learned uh, that what I needed to learn about were uh, boundaries, 
you know, self-protective boundaries. And the biggest thing of all, how to identify my feelings, how to slow down when I have a feeling and try to figure out what's happening with me. So that is my life's practice now, is when I have something happen, I try not to react right away like I would have before and kept it spinning. Boy, a narcissist just loves that. Uh, now I try to stop myself and go, what am I feeling here? Does this feel good or bad? Am I okay with this? Question myself and then respond accordingly. And I also practice my boundary setting statements and sticking up for myself. And then the little cap on my whole journey, which is kind of an odd thing to talk about here, but it's a thing. Um, I did an ayahuasca retreat and, uh, and I wasn't sure what that was going to bring me. I didn't have hallucinations. I didn't have like a form coming to me and telling me messages or whatnot. But I'll tell you, the very end of that weekend, uh, we did three ayahuasca ceremonies that were you know, quite beautiful. I must say the music and everything and the, the community involved in it was beautiful. There were about 30 people with us. Um, but it was the very last hour of my ayahuasca weekend where I sort of hugged myself and I thought, you're still here. I'm still here. Like all the things they threw at you. They tried to rob you. They tried to hurt you. They tried to break your brain. They tried to do You're still here. And by saying that, I think what I realize, and my cry when I say it, is, is I do have a little self. You know, there's a little self in here. We all have a little self, you know, and that little self is your job to protect and to take care of. So when I talk to people about what I've learned about narcissism and codependency, uh, I tell people, love yourself first and trust your gut. Those are the two most important takeaways uh, for me is love yourself first. That doesn't mean you don't love the whole wide world, but just put yourself first so you can love everybody else after. And then pay attention to those little messages your body is giving you. My goal is to help other people you know, to understand themselves so that they can protect themselves, you know, because like I said, there's a little self in here and it's my job to protect it. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here with us today. You're going to help a, a lot of people. So a really big thank you. You did a great job today. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Thank you so much for having this podcast. You know, I know you've talked to a lot of people who have uh, been victimized, you know, in situations and uh, the most important thing is feeling heard and believed. You know, when you are gaslit all the time, you know, it is, uh, you just want to be believed, you know, that these things have happened to you and empathized with, you know. And so, uh, so thank you for allowing people a platform to share their stories and help others. Well, thank you very much. And Erin has also written a book about her experience, and we are going to leave that link in our show notes if you want to read her book. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Erin was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest forum page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. 
And also at our website, we have our very own support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's also a button there that says support group. And when you click on that button, it takes you to our support group page. There you can see that we have our very own safe social network where we have meetings, Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, every Thursday afternoon, and every Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation you need, share your experience, and validate the experience of other survivors like yourself. It is a great group of people in our support group. So if you need support, please do join our support group. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. And they have every phone number, every website address and email address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small your town is. Domestic Shelters has it there, so please do visit them. It's a wonderful organization run by wonderful people. Hello to Ashley. It's just a great organization, so please do go to domesticshelters.org. So one last thing before we leave today and we are going to be creating an initiative to help survivors squirrel away some money or help survivors who are already out of the situations to get extra money to uh, put a roof over their head or get food, things like that. And we are creating a page where we want people to shop or use the services of survivors. And if you are a copywriter or if you are a graphic designer, you would put it on that page. If you had an Etsy store, an eBay store, we would put it on our page. We're going to create sections for different types of businesses. You could be a financial planner. You could be someone who is a real estate agent. No matter what type of business it is, if it's a service business, if it's in the art business, if you're a seller of clothes or any type of seller, you could be in the coffee sales business or something like that. We want to put this on our website and we are going to do our best to get people to shop or use the services that you have because we want to get uh, money in your pockets and we want to help you uh, leave situations because uh, financial stuff is a big, big barrier to leaving. And that's just not in actually leaving, but once you're out and having uh, money uh, coming to you. So we really want to start this initiative. We've been uh, starting to build a template of how this is going to work on our on our website. So it's not up yet, but we're just accumulating more people's businesses. So if this is of interest to you, please send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put Survivor Business in the subject line. And please do keep sending those in. And a big thank you to the people that have already. And that is it for today's show. So I just want to thank you for listening to today's show. And from myself and Aaron, we hope you have a good night.